May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So is anyone other than me struck with the degree of whining that we see in today's readings from the Scriptures? <laughs> First it's, oh, woe is me, I have worked, I, my life has been miserable, I have just worked, worked, worked at things I hate, and I'm going to die, and someone who did nothing to earn it is going to accumulate it all. Oh, poor me. And then more whining along with a little irony, the gospel opens, Jesus, Jesus, make my brother share the inheritance with me. And Jesus has like absolutely no time or attention or interest to devote to this particular question. And I'm with him. Why should we care how you boys split the accumulation of things that you did nothing to earn. But while Jesus can, and in this case does, say, I really don't care about that problem, he never says, I don't care about you. And so he seizes this moment to do a little teaching. Teaching, I think, that has to do with the meaning of work and also with the meaning of life. These guys, these whining guys, and ours. There's the obvious, you can't take it with you. But I think there's something deeper there, again, about the very meaning of work itself and the meaning of life. So we can get also a little confused in trying to deal with this around what constitutes work. So there's the work that we do to make the money that supports ourselves and the people who depend upon us. And there's the work that we are given by God to do, God's work that we share in. So in order, for the sake of clarity, let's call the latter ministry. Every one of us is called to and given ministry. Our scriptures are clear from Genesis, through the Gospels, through the baptismal covenant, the promises that we make and that are made to us at the time of our baptism, clear that every one of us is given gifts and talents for ministry, to be God's partners in creating the world, bringing the realm of heaven here now, as Jesus keeps promising, that that's our responsibility, and we are in fact given the, the gifts and the talents to do it. That's our ministry, which sometimes is and sometimes is not the same thing as our work. I've been really fortunate in my life mostly to be able to make a living doing things that I would do for free if I could afford to. Things that feel like a use of my gifts and talents, that feel like ministry. Whether that was, you know, park ranger or teacher, activist, priest, I made a living doing the things I, that felt like they were participating in God's creation and, and doing my share of the work. Now, I also spent one summer as a janitor and a couple doing construction work, which I probably would not do for free, and did not feel like they were my lifelong call in ministry, though they had their opportunities for ministry, not only by being a good and responsible colleague and kind to the people that you encounter, but 
I think it matters to folks that the buildings they enter are well constructed and safe, or that the public restrooms they use are clean and mine sparkled. There's nothing wrong with doing work well, even if it's just work and not ministry. And in fact, that work paid for college the opportunity to prepare for the, the other ministries that I, in fact, felt called for. They paid not only, they bought me time to then volunteer as a first responder with the fire department and the rescue squad to be a good friend with time for my friends. It's possible, if we're really lucky, that our work and our ministry are the same thing. It's also perfectly fine when we work in order to afford to do our ministry. The problem that Jesus keeps getting at is the unrelenting accumulation of wealth, the desire to work. You know, this, the Ecclesiastes reading, the guy wasn't working in order to then find joy and, and um, engage in his ministry. He's, he was miserable, he said. He toiled and toiled and toiled for nothing but misery. That's the issue, right? That's the issue. When we just get so focused on the money that it becomes an end rather than a tool. And we know better than that. We know that money can buy some fun, but it won't buy happiness, much less joy. I had a, a very wealthy friend whose daughter died on the operating table as a child. And this friend used to say, money solves all the little problems only the little ones. And we know that. So why do so many of us get hooked in the same cycle as the Ecclesiastes teacher who did things that made him miserable in order to accumulate more and more, or the readers from the gospel who just wanted stuff without having to earn it? How do we get caught in that? And I don't think it's entirely impossible to figure out at least some ideas of how that happens. Some of us were raised by parents who grew up in the Depression. Not inconceivable how we got the idea that you got to be careful to have enough. There are studies that show that women of my generation, no matter how well off we are, always fear that we are steps away from being bag ladies. No matter how unrealistic it is, why? Well, until I was a teenager, women couldn't have their own credit cards. You lost your credit history if you got divorced. You couldn't own property without your husband or your father signing for it. Maybe not inconceivable how it is we fear being left without enough. And there are entire communities of folks who, because of their race or their immigration status or accidents of geography, belong to communities that have for generations been systemically set up to fail, impoverished by design. Maybe not surprising that no matter how well off any individual may be, there is that embedded fear. That fear of not having enough. Or is it the fear of not being enough? Or is it some other fear that I'm not positioned in my life to see. 
So while we're talking about hard to understand fears, let's take a break from the text for a minute and look at what's going on in our, not St. Columbus, but our broader church right now. The bishops of the Anglican Communion are gathered, as they do kind of every 10 years, in Lambeth. Kind of every 10 years. We'll get back to why. Right now, uh, the 2022 Lambeth should have actually been the 2018 Lambeth, which you'll, if you pause a minute, you'll realize this wasn't COVID that undid it. 2018 was before COVID. What undid it was fighting about gay bishops and the fear that conservatives wouldn't show up. So they put it off until they could fight a little more. And we're in the middle of it now. And all the bishops of the Anglican Communion and their spouses have been invited, oh, except for the spouses of the gay and lesbian bishops. They were specifically not invited. And as a courtesy to the conservative bishops. Even so, those bishops, after arriving, have declared that they will not have Eucharist with the rest of the bishops in the community because in the room, eating at the same table, will be gay bishops. So they're not going to that table. Now, so that's 2022, which replaces 2018, which wasn't held as an effort to calm those guys down a bit. 20, 2008, there was only one bishop in the Anglican Communion, gay bishop in the Anglican Communion, Gene Robinson, and he specifically was the only Anglican bishop in the world not invited to Lambeth. Even so, those same conservative bishops refused to go to Eucharist with the rest of their colleagues because some of their colleagues were supportive of Gene. And they weren't going to sit at table with people who supported and had maybe even voted for or helped consecrate a gay bishop. And in 1998, there were no gay bishops, but there were women. So they wouldn't eat at the table. They wouldn't go to Eucharist because there were women bishops there. So what is it they're afraid of? What is it they're afraid of? Is there something that they fear there's not enough of? Is it that they fear not being right? It can't be that they just don't want to eat with sinners because Jesus ate with sinners all the time. What's the fear? And I don't know. I do not know. But here's what I do know. No matter how much we have or how right we are, our fears make us petty and small and inconsequential. Us, we who were created in the very image of God and promised in our baptismal covenant that we could and must grow into the full stature of Christ. The full stature of Christ. The image of God. That's us. We were created to be big, powerful, creative, consequential. We were created to be more than we can even imagine. So what are the fears that distract us, that take our focus off of the end and onto the means? What are the fears that imprison us, that keep us small? What are the things that stand in the way 
of our becoming God's partners, God's stewards, God's agents, God's partners in God's own image? What are the fears that stand in the way of our realizing our birthright? I don't know whether if we pulled it together we would have lists as long as the population of the earth or whether there'd be two or one. I don't know. I can only figure out mine and encourage you to figure out yours. What is it that distracts you from the ministry that you were given? And we all have them. Maybe you're a healer of bodies or minds or spirits. Maybe you're a teacher, a parent, a performer who's, who brings wisdom and joy to the world through their art. Maybe you have a gift for kindness or compassion, friendship. Whatever, you have these gifts. You are expected to use them for ministry, for for empowering the kingdom of God. What distracts you from that? What do you fear that gets in the way? What might you be if you could put that fear aside and actually become who you were created and meant to be? That's my question. My prayer is that God gives us the, the wisdom to ask those questions and the courage to find the answers and the grace to act upon them. Amen.